0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the InFocus podcast. I'm your host, G. Sampad. At a time when most parts of the world are easing COVID restrictions and even mask mandates, Shanghai is in the middle of a brutal lockdown. There have been reports of a sharp spike in the number of cases, although deaths have been very few, according to reports available and restricted to the very elderly. Shanghai's 25 million residents, however, seem to be increasingly fed up with the government's zero-COVID policy, which has caused supply chain bottlenecks, resulting in shortages of food and other essential items, denial of medical care for patients with non-COVID illnesses, and there are even reports of infants being separated from parents forcibly sent away to quarantine shelters. Until this March, there was a general sense that China had managed the pandemic way better than the West, especially when viewed in terms of the total caseload and mortality numbers. So how did things get out of hand all of a sudden? Is it a case of the zero-COVID policy backfiring? And now that President Xi Jinping has come to be associated with the zero-COVID policy, is there any chance of China making a course correction given the extent of public disenchantment with these measures. For a better sense of what's going on in Shanghai and its potential implications, we speak with Anand Krishnan, the Hindu's China correspondent. Anand, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Sampar.
0: Anand, to start with, can you give us some idea of how bad really is the lockdown scenario in Shanghai? How long has it been going on? And are all those videos we keep seeing on social media of uh, food shortages, residents getting dragged away by officials in hazmat suits. Are these really? I mean, are they are they fake videos? Are they disinformation, or is it all uh, really happening?
1: I'm afraid to say, Sampath, it is really happening.
0: For the, for three weeks now,
1: Shanghai has been in a, a very uh, strict lockdown. Um, it's been since March first. Uh, the city has reported four hundred thousand cases, uh, and this is the Omicron variant. Uh, And so far, they've reported, uh, I think, as of April 20th, maybe just around seven or eight deaths. So that's a very low number of deaths, which some people have, have raised questions about. But it has been a very harsh lockdown for more than three weeks now. People have been confined to their apartments. It is in a situation where you could even, say, go down to the gate of your apartment complex and pick up deliveries or walk to your supermarket and pick up groceries. It's such a stringent lockdown, Sampad, Just imagine that people with families are locked up in their apartments. So essentially, they are completely reliant on the government giving them basic supplies. Uh, in an ideal situation, Sampad, the e-commerce applications, which are very popular in China, would have worked because at the click of a button, obviously, especially in a city like Shanghai, you can order anything from fresh meat to vegetables, whatever you need. But the problem in Shanghai, Sampad, is for the last two, three weeks, the entire logistics system has come to a complete standstill for several reasons. And all of these reasons pertain to China's zero-COVID strategy. And uh, just to give our listeners a, a, just a rough idea of what exactly this strategy is, is from the days of the Wuhan lockdown, uh, China has been closed to the world for more than two years now. Very few people from outside China, including their own nationals, for more than two years can actually even go back to China. Those that go back have to do mandatory 21 days quarantine. Uh, And so the Chinese government has argued that this strategy has kind of spared them a major second wave that we saw in India and the West. Uh, And it is true that, uh, and I can tell you from my own vantage point here in Hong Kong, that it is true that through 2020, second half of 2020 and 2021, both Hong Kong and the mainland were fairly largely normal. Schools were open, unlike most of the world, and there were hardly any few cases. So they felt that the zero-COVID strategy, basically, when there's a case in a particular area, they would lock down that building, test everyone, isolate close contacts, and thus control the spread. What has changed, Sampath, it first happened in Hong Kong in January 2022 and then in Shanghai currently. The thing that changed everything was the Omicron variant that proved to be far more transmissible and harder to detect because of the number of asymptomatic cases. And it's just completely collapsed the zero COVID strategy as a result of that.
0: Right. Okay, so you just mentioned uh, two, three interesting points. One, you said it's the Omicron variant, uh, which is much more uh, transmissible, but we also know that it's fairly mild. And then uh, you spoke about 400,000 cases in Shanghai and about seven or eight deaths. And that really doesn't seem like something which warrants uh, such an extreme lockdown? I mean, even earlier, wasn't Shanghai following uh, some kind of a localized, targeted neighborhood policy of restrictions for containing COVID? Why shift suddenly uh, to these blanket lockdowns? I mean, why, when and why did this flexible policy get replaced by a harsher lockdown? And for what reasons?
1: I think the main reason, uh, Sampad, was that this targeted lockdown policy that you mentioned worked with earlier variants where they were trying to avoid a citywide lockdown. But I think that's what they tried to do in Shanghai as well. But they were unable to keep up with the spread of cases as they were able to do with Delta and other variants through testing and tracing uh, and mass testing at an early stage. But Shanghai w- didn't do that. Uh, and because of that, it was just impossible. They were, they've always been behind the curve. And once you're behind the curve and tracing the virus, it's pretty much game over. Uh, and it's important to add something, but the reason why Omicron is mild, uh, I think many studies have borne this out only because of vaccinations. I think Hong Kong is the biggest example of the fact that, uh, I mean, we think Omicron is mild because all of us have had, most of us uh, in large parts of the world have had two doses or three doses. Uh, but I think the problem in uh, Shanghai and also in here in Hong Kong is that there were a large number of elderly residents who did not take vaccines, and you may wonder why. And that's very ironically because of the zero COVID policy. I've spoken to friends of mine here in Hong Kong who, whose parents uh, were not taking the vaccine because for two years now, there was no COVID in Hong Kong. It's hard for us to imagine in India. But for two years now, pretty much, there's been no COVID here. So I'm thinking among... And the same in Shanghai as well. I know people in India are quite skeptical, uh, thinking that it's impossible. But that was the case when I first came to Hong Kong in 2021. There were no cases here. So for older people, it was uh, the wide perception. And now it's, a, it's sadly for many who died, 8,000 elderly people who died in Hong Kong. It was a wrong perception that there was more to risk health-wise from taking the vaccine than from the chance of getting COVID. Uh, And I think here, uh, Sampad, the government has some responsibility as well. If you look at what Singapore did, zero COVID kind of became a victim of its own success because people believed that it would continue indefinitely because the governments gave them the impression that it would continue indefinitely. They never had a timetable of opening up and saying, listen, all of you need to get vaccinated. And if you don't get vaccinated by by such and such date, We are anyway going to open up to the world and live with the virus. That's something Hong Kong didn't do. That's something the mainland hasn't done. And so now it's facing a race against time to vaccinate elderly people who haven't uh, taken the vaccine. Uh, Here in Hong Kong, uh, Sampat, which I think is an interesting barometer to understand what's happening in the mainland because Hong Kong is much more transparent. Hong Kong, I think, has been fairly accurate with its numbers. There's been no fudging. In Shanghai, there's lots of skepticism. In Hong Kong, we had, say, a million cases and 8,000 deaths. So people are wondering, how does Shanghai have 400,000 cases and eight or nine deaths? So Hong Kong's data, I think, is a hugely valuable tool for us to understand what's happening. And the one thing, Sampad, that comes out from Hong Kong's data is that elderly people who are vaccinated with both of the vaccines available here, which is the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine and the Sinovac vaccine, both have worked in protecting people from hospitalization and death. So, I think it's it offers a clear roadmap uh, in terms of the future, but the problem now is they're really facing a race against time to to minimize deaths and minimize how unvaccinated residents are going to be affected
0: right so so you're suggesting that uh, i mean lack of vaccination among the elderly could have been one of the reasons uh, when combined with the higher transmission rate of omicron for what we're seeing in shanghai, but I was also wondering, is it just uh inadequate vaccination of the elderly because I don't know what percentage of the population these people are they unvaccinated if they are just the elderly and how mobile they are. Because is it also possible that Sinovac is not as effective as the I say the Pfizer-Biontech F- vaccine and the other vaccines when it comes to the Omicron variant?
1: I think the numbers from uh, Hong Kong in terms of vaccine e- e- efficacy suggest that Sinovac works fine if you've had three doses. Uh, Joel Chan, who's been tracing uh, vaccination data in Hong Kong and sharing those numbers, found out that uh, BioNTech, the mRNA vaccine for one dose, offers much more protection than Sinovac. It's 71% versus 49%. But I think this is something that's lost on a lot of people is when it comes to two doses, Sinovac fares as well as uh, Covishield. Or, and it fa- for example, for two doses, Sinovac is 81% and BioNTech is 90%. It's not a big difference. And when it comes to three doses, Sinovac is 97% compared to BioNTech, 98%. So if you're vaccinating people with three doses of Sinovac, I mean, the idea is not to stop infections. The idea is to prevent hospitalizations and deaths. And I think there's very strong evidence to suggest that Sinovac, when given three doses, does the job more than what's needed. So I think that that's a huge element in terms of, I think if, Hong Kong had handled it differently. I know some people in the mainland were looking at Hong Kong as a test case. Hong Kong, uh, when we had this wave of cases here in January, could not lock down like Shanghai only because it's a very different political system. Of course, even though it's one country, two systems, it isn't nowhere like the mainland where they can confine people to their apartments. Or in the mainland, you know, the Communist Party has neighborhood committees, the kind of grassroots governance, which was very... Uh, you know, crucial in the way they handle lockdowns in 2020, because they would monitor each residential complex. They will handle resources for every residential complex. Hong Kong isn't like that. It's like any other city in the world where, you know, you don't have this kind of one party system that filters right from the top to the neighborhood. So I think they were looking to see how Hong Kong fared. And I think when they saw this wave of deaths in Hong Kong, I think they kind of realized that they had a big problem. Uh, In terms of people who've been given two doses um, uh, in the above 60 or above 80 population in the mainland, there have been varying numbers, which uh, suggest that it could be as many as two-thirds who've been uh, given three doses, or maybe even only half. So if you're thinking about, just as a ballpark, Sampat, if you're thinking about 50% of this group not vaccinated with adequate boosters... Uh, and that's something like a hundred million people in China. So I think that you're you're actually looking at certainly millions of deaths if uh, there was going to be a big spread among unvaccinated elderly.
0: Right. Now coming back uh, to the zero COVID policy, when I, mean, I I mean I still wonder if I mean even if if we take into account that there has been uh, a sharp rise in case load. But but as of uh, official numbers, from what we know, you have said that there are there is some skepticism about the number of deaths. But if it is just a matter of rising positivity in terms of new cases, and there are not many deaths, there are other lesser ways of, uh, as in less brutal ways of handling the new wave. We could go with the testing and uh, you know tracking and so on. But this kind of confining people uh, to their homes and making them completely dependent on government service delivery. I mean, I was just wondering, is there a lot more suffering uh, because of these zero COVID policy related measures rather than actual COVID itself? Like, how would you characterize the public's view of the pandemic management happening today as opposed to, say, last year or the year before?
1: No, absolutely. I have no doubt in saying, some that the disaster is happening in Shanghai now is a completely policy-made disaster. It's it's a disaster that's completely made by the Chinese government's zero COVID policy more than because of COVID. There's no doubt about that, the harsh measures uh, and the like. And the fact is there have been reports some of the people dying from other, uh, I mean, how do you uh, explain that? People who are dying from other illnesses because they're confined in their apartments not getting treatment, uh, whether it's cancer patients or whether it's uh, people who have other ailments that require treatment. We don't know and we will never know how many people have died because they've been locked up. Uh, And a friend of mine in Shanghai put it saying that, you know, they are saying that zero COVID is the most humanitarian policy uh, because it preserves every life. But then, as he told me, they only care about deaths from COVID and it seems that they don't really care if people die from something else. Uh, And I think that the numbers, there is a big question mark in the numbers as well because there have been reports, including in the Chinese media, some of these were later censored, about waves of deaths in elderly homes in Shanghai, in at least two elderly homes. But there is a, a sort of challenge here, as we saw in India as well. It's not only a question of authorities willfully suppressing deaths, but it's also a question of people dying and not being tested. Uh, so sometimes the numbers won't show up. But I think that there is skepticism. There should be skepticism with the data. because. We've spoken about the public health, sampath and uh, we should speak more about the politics as well, because, as you mentioned in the introduction, in China, it's a hugely political, zero COVID is Xi Jinping's personal big legacy. It's something he's personally insisted on. And if you're a provincial government official in China, you will. Uh, this is a very important year where many officials are retiring as a party congress in the end of 2022. And if you are in charge of a city or a province that's going to report lots of deaths or cases, your chances of your political future are gone. And I think the Chinese system incentivizes this kind of, you know, subterfuge and cover-up and, and opacity. And I think that that's certainly the case, I'm sure, in China as well, where I think maybe the numbers, they've been reporting 20,000 numbers daily on average, which possibly sounds about right. But... There may be lots of deaths of elderly people who are not being included in the statistics. The fact that they announced the first deaths uh, on Monday, April 18th, when even in the first week of April, we knew that there were deaths in elderly homes. I think that that just gives you an example of the fact that as far as deaths are concerned, uh, I think that uh, there's some reason to be skeptical. Also because, um, but, uh, to go back to that point, the basic justification of zero COVID is that in the Communist Party's propaganda, that it shows that the Communist Party protects life compared to irresponsible foreign countries where millions have died. That's been their propaganda message for two years. So now you've made people follow this for two years. China has been isolated from the world for two years. And if you're still going to end up with debts, where does that leave you? And what does it say about your policy and governance? So I think that's something that they will be worried about.
0: Right. Also, I think in the in the in the context of uh, the actual figures of deaths and what is put out by the Chinese government, we know of course that China is a totalitarian one-party state. Uh, and I think in this context, it's worth it might be relevant to mention that in India, which is a democracy, I mean there has been a huge controversy now with the New York Times piece saying with with the WHO's figures not matching India's official figures by a quite a large margin. So there has been some kind of uh, you know, skepticism expressed, not just with regard to China, but with India as well. And we are supposedly more transparent and more democratic with our numbers and uh, information dissemination. But coming back to uh, the, the Shanghai lockdown, what has been the economic impact of this latest uh, wave of cases and lockdown? And I, I am assuming it's not just Shanghai, but but quite a few other cities as well who collectively perhaps account for about, about 40% of the GDP?
1: Right. Uh, just before coming to the economic impact, I think it's a good point that you mentioned, some in terms of India's own problem with numbers. And I think that in China, the the question of data is more, I would say, uh, it's not as black and white as sometimes people in India may think a question where, you know, they have the numbers and they're hiding it and it's a complete cover-up. I think as in India, it's a combination uh, in China of their capabilities of assessing those Numbers accurately. And also, of course, there's intent to cover up. And I think that sometimes we miss out on the capability part of it. By that, I mean, in the first days of Wuhan, for example, it was, uh, I, I mean, officially China has 4,000 plus deaths from COVID over two years. And most of those deaths were in Wuhan. But the, what happened in Wuhan, I mean, certainly there were more deaths than 4,000 deaths in Wuhan. But At that point of time, at the start of the pandemic, uh, and I I was hearing this from doctors in Wuhan, that there was no way of testing people. There were people dying who were not being classified as COVID-19 cases because they, frankly, did not test them or they were overwhelmed. And that happened in India as well in the first and second waves, where you had so many deaths uh, and people weren't tested. So the numbers in that sense don't capture uh, the entire picture. Uh, And I think that As far as the last two years were concerned, I'd say the Chinese numbers broadly, I don't think they were hiding waves of cases from people living there from my own experience in Hong Kong. Uh, But I think that where there's incentive to cover up is as we see now in Shanghai, uh, when there's so much politics behind assessing the success of this, uh, even if they will find it hard to cover up the, the sort of total number of cases when it comes to deaths, there may be things where they're not being classified as COVID deaths. And classified as other deaths, uh, so just it's just a bit of a more complicated picture,
0: I think, than than people kind of assume. One second, and just to go, get back to your, your very interesting point about uh, the numbers in China, you are saying that it's not just a simplistic thing of covering up, but it's also to do with capabilities and related factors, and uh, you know, early days of the lockdown, and taking all of those into account, even then uh, you are you are suggesting that china's deaths or, or deaths or the official numbers the gap between the official numbers and the actual numbers are not really comparable to the kind of magnitude by you know by by a factor of 4 or 5 that we are seeing in the indian case is that what you're saying
1: i think that uh, in wuhan for sure we, we we will never know the kind of total number of deaths because i think it happens in any country including in india when health uh, healthcare systems are overwhelmed certainly i would say that there are far more than 4000 deaths in wuhan And certainly there were probably more deaths than official figures reflected in other cities in China. But I was in Beijing in January 2020 when the pandemic began, and there were a few deaths in Beijing, but I can tell there were no waves of deaths because we were all locked down. Uh, And until April 2020, people were locked down and there wasn't, uh, and people always wonder why did China not have waves of deaths? It's because the whole country was in a very highly centralized lockdown until April 2020. And then when they began opening up at home, they never opened up to the world, which which is how they sort of kept COVID cases in check. So I don't think it's a case where China has had a million deaths, as some people say on social media. Uh, I think that's highly implausible, given that you've had, for example, so many foreign journalists who've been living in China throughout the last two years. You had, uh, you know, others who who follow China's healthcare system and know how how it works and have seen, for example. The fact that you haven't seen hospitals in most Chinese cities overwhelmed in the last two years uh, in most places. So I don't think it's a case uh, that uh, it's it's been this, you know, you've had waves of COVID deaths and they've been covering those up. Uh, as I said, I think certainly maybe in Wuhan initially, but not elsewhere in China, if, if that makes sense.
0: Right. And uh, coming to the economic impact of this latest wave of lockdowns in Shanghai and other cities.
1: Right. So obviously... So, uh, yesterday on April 19th, we had the GDP data for the first quarter at 4.8%, which was less than the, the 5.5% target for the year. And there's a lot of skepticism uh, on that 4.8%. Coming back to the question of accuracy of numbers, which is a theme that you always associate with China, they, here there's huge good reason to be skeptical about 4.8%, because as some people have pointed out as well, you had Some figures suggesting a huge fall in, for example, cement production, but then you've had a huge rise in fixed asset investment. So you have these kind of indicators that make no sense and don't square with each other. And I think that if Q1 was 4.8 below their 5.5 target for the year, Q1 didn't really reflect this huge outbreak that we've seen from March onwards. I think Q2 is going to be a lot worse, even if the data may say otherwise. It's hard to see how there isn't going to be a massive economic impact. In Q2. And it's important uh, to remember something, as you said, Shanghai has kind of gotten all of the attention because it's, it's the financial center, it's the biggest city in China. But there are lots of other cities that are in various phases of lockdown. We've seen huge problems with the logistic and trucking network uh, because of China's zero COVID rules, for example. It, see, local governments in China are always caught in between what the central government wants them to do. And often central governments in China give local governments completely unrealistic and unfeasible targets and then blame them when they don't achieve them. Uh, An example is the fact that, you know, local governments are told to keep logistics channels open, but then if local governments report COVID-19 cases, they're going to be hauled up. So, uh, and I think the incentives of bureaucracy, particularly in Xi Jinping's China, is to always go with the harshest approach. Uh, It's always to lock down more than you need to. Uh, It's always to be harsher than you need to because no one in, in the system gets rewarded for showing empathy or common sense or for saying, you know, let's keep businesses open, even if they're going to be COVID cases. At the end of the day, if you follow that kind of open approach and you have a COVID wave, you're going to be the first to get sacked. So I think it's a structural problem that incentivizes the kind of approach. I think the kind of approach can be summed up as, you know, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And that's how the bureaucracy kind of kind of functions. So for sure, I think um, as long as this current approach continues, there will be a huge economic impact and beyond Shanghai.
0: Right. Uh, we are running out of time, Anand. So one final question before we wrap up. So you spoke about how uh, the economy is not looking great, I mean, but Shanghai is China's biggest hub for uh, trade and commerce. But then its uh, streets are empty, the businesses are shut. And uh, how long do you think this state of affairs can continue before uh, Xi Jinping comes under some kind of political pressure to ease up? Because as you rightly said, there is this perverse incentive structure built into the bureaucracy where people uh, would want to go for the harshest measures because anything in terms of opening up, if it results in rising cases, they're going to be hauled up. So at the same time, you also need uh, better outcomes in terms of the economy. And businesses and commercial and trade prospects so how is it going to play out politically for uh, z given especially that he's going to be looking to secure a third term uh, later this year
1: my my bet would be something that i think this choice between economic growth and political stability because they look at covid as a political stability question i mean we spoke about the public health reasons and all that but From my own point of view, I think there's more politics and public health in determining zero COVID, because if they really wanted to open up and vaccinate the elderly, of course, China could have done that. Uh, It has the tools to do that. And I think that the issue is that for Xi Jinping, zero COVID has been something that he stamped his authority on, even with the anger about the, the sufferings of people in Shanghai. He was on a visit to Hainan this week, and he said that, you know, we can't let up in the fight against COVID-19. So he pretty much said this will continue. I think they'll continue to do this and throw the kitchen sink at it and kind of uh, follow this approach. I don't expect them to open up to the world. I think regardless of the economic costs, uh, he seems to be set on this approach that that shows that China has the political capacity to control the virus, to keep deaths at a minimum. And, you know, all said and done, uh, from their point of view, it worked for two years, where even though they were close to the world, China had its record trade performance in 2021. uh, And the fact that they were able to keep factories working for two years when the world was going through cycles of lockdown, the fact that, you know, Chinese business export performance was a record because the rest of the world was buying more goods from China than ever before as they dealt with COVID. So I think that until the party Congress, for sure, he's going to continue with this to prove that they have the political wherewithal to deal with it, regardless of the economic costs. Uh, and one can only hope, uh, some because I know that a lot of Chinese are been thinking of, at least some friends of mine, it's not a representative sample size, but I know friends of mine have been saying they're trying to find ways to leave China and immigrate, and they can't carry on with this, uh, with one or two more years of this. People who have business interests abroad haven't been able to travel abroad. Some people have their family abroad. They haven't seen their children for two years. So I think a lot of people from now compared to two years ago, I'd say the number of People losing patients with zero COVID is certainly growing. But at the end of the day, we have to remember that she has all the power, regardless of people's frustrations. Uh, as much as he will be mindful of that, uh, I think that he will probably stay the course for at least some time to come.
0: Right. It does look like uh, he's quite determined to stay the course. But but as you said, I mean, we have been reading a lot of reports, especially in the Western press, about how people are really fed up of course it may have worked well for 2 years and people may have supported it for 2 years but now it's like continuing uh, going on and on and on and I, when i read one interesting report somewhere about how an entire building a high rise skyscraper residential complex the entire building people came out and screamed they screamed let out their frustrations when that that sort of uh, is sort of symbolic in a way i think uh, people don't want to be subjected to this Forever, for forever and ever, you know. I mean, do you think that's going to sort of? Is there any likelihood of it translating into some kind of instability or outpouring of resentment or dissent?
1: I mean, uh, unfortunately, that's all people can do at the moment is scream out of their apartment windows or post messages online that often get censored. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we have to remember that she controls the entire security forces, the army. I mean, at the end of the day, he he has all the reins of power, and I think there's only limited amount that people can do. And, uh, I mean, again, it depends how the situation spreads. If the entire city is going to be, if the entire country, I beg your pardon, um, is going to be in a situation uh, like Shanghai, which, of course, right now they're working overtime to prevent that from happening. Uh, And that's why they are locking down Shanghai so excessively, because they don't want it to spread to other cities. Uh, And they know, uh, the Communist Party knows that its worst-case scenario would be if you had multiple Shanghais, the same time, and that would be something that would worry them. So, I think what they would probably do is continue this kind of approach of trying to nip COVID in the bud before it spreads in other cities. And so, I would expect other cities to go through, uh, you know, minimal lockdowns when they have in a few cases, which we've seen, for example, in Beijing, uh, where rather than lock down the entire city, what they've tried to do is lock down districts uh, slightly more than what Shanghai did and kind of left Shanghai overwhelmed by it. So, I think that, uh, that I don't think we are near that tipping point uh, to, to sort of answer your question. I don't think we've come there yet.
0: Right. Uh, thank you so much, Anandia. It's, it's, sort of, uh, it's It's both good and not so good to know that the tipping point hasn't yet been reached. We'll have to wait and see how this plays out in the coming weeks and months. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights. Pleasure talking.
1: Thank you so much.
0: In Focus, we'll be back soon.